from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 5th. Today, a crisis of voting rights in state legislatures across the country and before the Supreme Court. Ladies and gentlemen of the House. Mr. Speaker, House Bill 531 is designed to begin to bring back the confidence of our voters back into our election system. Over the past three weeks, Republican state lawmakers across the country have been proposing and voting on a variety of voting restrictions. Amy Gardner covers voting issues for The Post. The bill addresses several different areas of elections. Everything from restricting who's eligible to vote by mail to how many early voting days there will be to restricting the use of ballot boxes, making witness requirements stricter, eliminating automatic voter registration at DMVs, making it illegal for state and local election officials to accept private sourced money to help them administer the elections. Most Republicans say that these measures are needed to make elections more secure. You can't make some of this stuff up. I mean, it's just unbelievable what we've seen. And I am more and more convinced now that this was a well-orchestrated, well-coordinated effort uh, by several groups to commit widespread and systemic fraud. Some Republicans say they know that the election was pretty secure last year and acknowledge that it wasn't rigged and that there wasn't widespread fraud, but they say that these measures are needed to make their constituents believe that the elections are more secure because their constituents don't believe that last year's elections were secure. Amy talked with Post Reports producer Rennie Svernotsky. So where are we seeing such legislation being considered? Which states? It's really interesting. It does not directly correlate with states where the elections were contested and where President Trump and his supporters and allies claimed without evidence that fraud had tainted the outcome. Mm -hmm. In some states, proposals are coming forward, Georgia and Pennsylvania, that were hotly contested where President Trump alleged uh, fraud and there was no evidence ever found of widespread fraud. But what's really actually in some ways more interesting is all the states where elections were not contested and where Republicans have, you know, a hard hold on power, where they're also proposing these restrictions, places like Iowa, South Carolina, Missouri, Montana. And that, to some political scientists and voting rights advocates is evidence that this isn't really about making elections more secure, but is really about showing loyalty to former President Trump because he has made it clear that he views support for his effort to overturn the result of the election and President Biden's victory as a effectively a loyalty test. He said that he will support primary challenges to people who did not fight with him 
to overturn the election result. And could you speak a little more specifically about the legislation proposed in some of these individual states? Yeah. So one of the most interesting states where a host of voting restrictions are being considered is is Georgia. And the reason why it's interesting is because Georgia is a pretty conservative state. Joe Biden won it, the first Democrat to do so in a long time. Mm -hmm. But it's still a very Republican state. It has a Republican governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and a Republican-controlled legislature. But what's interesting is that those four top statewide elected officials, all Republicans, did not embrace President Trump's allegations of fraud in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, who is very nearly a household name these days, pushed back on President Trump's claims. The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Brian Kemp, the governor, signed the certification last fall. The attorney general, Chris Carr, is potentially going to be investigating the call that President Trump made to Brad Raffensperger. But the legislature is passing these measures anyway. There is a proposal to eliminate no-excuse absentee balloting, which means that you have to have a reason to be eligible to vote by mail. Either you have a disability or you live overseas or you're in the military and a few other categories. Whereas absentee balloting last year in a lot of states was expanded to be open to anyone or the very least temporarily voters were allowed to give COVID as a reason for voting that way, fear of infection at the polls, that kind of thing. And in Georgia, there's one proposal to curtail early voting so that it wouldn't be available on weekends, which Democrats and particularly civil rights activists and black Americans say is a direct shot at souls to the polls, which is a long standing get out the vote effort by Democrats to turn out black voters on Sundays after they've gone to church. So the totality of these measures is to squeeze the available options for voters. So it's making it less available to voters to vote by mail. It's making early voting less available. And all of that, it's like squeezing a balloon, right? And then the pressure shifts to another part of the balloon. And all that pressure is going to wind up on election day. These legislatures are not proposing tons of more money to open up more precincts or extend voting hours or hire more precinct workers for election day. So what voting rights advocates are saying is that all this is is going to create a huge crunch on election day. And they believe that the big issue in 2022 is going to be long lines. And then you see that they've got this proposal to block line warming in Georgia by nonpartisan groups, which is when volunteers pass out food and water and blankets when people are standing in long lines. I mean, I just can't imagine a reason to justify that other than to make it uncomfortable for people to stand in line to vote. And that strikes me as cynical and hard to defend as anything other than voter suppression. And you said earlier that not all Republican lawmakers seem to be in support of these restrictive measures. Could you tell me what what they're saying? 
Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting is that there are Republicans who are really worried that these measures are going to backfire. One Republican strategist in Georgia told me just today that they think that the state legislature is basically handing Stacey Abrams her talking points on a silver platter. And that being that the Republican Party is the party of voter suppression. If Stacey Abrams decides to run again for governor in Georgia against Brian Kemp in 2022, you can bet she's going to accuse the Republican Party of being the party of voter suppression. They see that the party is in a box that if they don't push these bills, they will be potentially primaried by Republicans who will question their loyalty to Donald Trump or the Republican Party. And if they do support these bills, they will have a hard time winning in a general election when Democrats will have all kinds of evidence to accuse them of being the party of voter suppression. That seems like a really obvious and very visible tension there. So so why do it? Why do these state Republican lawmakers, what is that signaling that they really think that they need devoted Trump supporters to build an election winning coalition and like that's the only way that they're going to get them? Or you know, like what, what do you feel that this signals? I think that there's probably a combination of forces at work. Some of these lawmakers really believe it. They're among the two-thirds of Republicans who really believe the election was stolen, who really believe these kinds of security measures are needed. Some of them know that they're not needed, but feel like they have to do it for all the reasons we just discussed. And I think some of them actually uh, wish that they didn't have to vote on it, I was told by the same Republican strategist in Georgia that there are something like 15 Republican state House members in Georgia who are in very, very closely contested House seats in the metro Atlanta area and other Democratic mm-hmm. areas or increasingly Democratic areas in the state who complained to House Speaker David Ralston that they can't vote on these bills. They are going to get their clocks cleaned in the general election if they support these bills, but they'll also get primaried if they don't. So they're in a box. And and knowing that these restrictive measures could be coming, how are Democrats and voting rights advocates responding? Well, I mean, the, the number one way that Democrats are responding is by trying to pass H.R. 1 in Congress, which is a steep hill because of the existence of the filibuster in the Senate, even though the Democrats have a very narrow majority in the Senate. It's not a filibuster-proof majority, and so there's a steep hill to climb there. H.R. 1 is a broad election reform bill that would do a lot of things and would create national standards that Democrats say would actually eliminate a lot of the problems that Republicans say caused public perceptions of irregularities, like requiring mm-hmm. states to allow ballots to get counted as they come in or you know, starting several weeks before the election instead of on election day, which is one of the huge sources of accusations of fraud last year, false accusations, because Donald Trump was ahead on election night in some states because only the election day votes had been tabulated by then. And then slowly over the ensuing few days, Joe Biden caught up because Democrats voted much more heavily by mail than in person on election day. And most of us knew that that was going to happen, but it was used as evidence of fraud. And Republicans complained about that 
but they're now opposing uh, this effort to make that a national standard. Other national standards like requiring DMVs to automatically register folks mm-hmm. to vote when they go to the DMV office and you know, having very standardized requirements for signature matching, for voter ID, you know, making it standardized so that there can't be these differentials across the country that uh, in some states contribute to the perceptions that things aren't going well. Some Republicans complain about certain processes that they say contribute to the perception of fraud or irregularity, but they're not willing to fix those problems, such as letting local election officials start counting their ballots, mail ballots ahead of election day so that the results are available more quickly, or allowing automatic voter registration updates to happen whenever you go to the DMV, which would make the voter rolls much more accurate. If I move and I change my driver's license, then my voter registration will automatically change too. But Republicans oppose that kind of standard. Democrats accuse Republicans of not wanting that uniformity so that they can say that the voter rolls are all riddled with errors and bloated so that they can then propose purging the voter rolls instead of agreeing to a system that would keep the voter rolls up to date on a regular basis. I mean, there is an argument that the the three critical swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania legislatures, all Republican-controlled legislatures, refused to allow ballots to be counted before Election Day last year because they knew that the length of time that it would take for those ballots to get counted after November 3rd would contribute to the frustrations about a lack of a result and would contribute to perceptions that the election was rigged because Donald Trump was ahead initially and then his lead evaporated in those states as time went on. And that's a that's an accusation that Republicans haven't really answered because they continue to not want those kinds of standards in place. Amy Gardner reports on voting issues for The Post. Rennie Svarnovsky is a producer for Post Reports. Voting rights are not just questions for state houses. They're also questions facing the Supreme Court, where on Tuesday, a key part of the Voting Rights Act was stress-tested. And Gilda Daniels was watching. I am a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. Uh, My crowning achievement thus far is that I'm the author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. She also used to work for the Justice Department. Yes, I am a former deputy chief in the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division voting section. I served as a deputy chief during the Clinton and Bush administrations. Did you have like a favorite voting rights case that you worked on while you were at DOJ? A favorite voting rights case, I think. Post Report senior producer Rena Flores talked with Gilda about the latest voting rights case before the Supreme Court. The Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oye, oye, oye. So let's talk about what happened this week. God save the United States and this honorable court. 
Can you tell me what was argued before the Supreme Court this week? We will hear argument this morning in case number 191257, Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee and the consolidated case. This week, the Supreme Court heard a very important uh, voting rights case. The case came out of Arizona and came from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I think the key conceptual point here to understand is that Arizona has not denied anyone any voting opportunity of any kind. The two issues that the Supreme Court heard this week involved the ability for persons to collect uh, mail-in ballots and uh, restrictions on out-of-precinct voting. The Ninth Circuit had said that those statutes violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and the Supreme Court was hearing the appeal from the state and particularly the Republican National Committee as to whether or not those decisions should be upheld. And... I think a lot of people might not understand why it even matters for, you know, these two election laws in particular. But can you explain sort of why these two specific laws matter to minority communities? We certainly saw this during the 2020 election because we had wide-scale mail-in balloting. There are laws across the country that prohibit persons other than family members to collect ballots. There is a disparate impact in regards to uh, communities of color, right, where mailboxes are located or where drop boxes are located in order to access the vote. If you can't vote because you are a Native American um, or a non-Hispanic in areas where car ownership rates are very small, where you don't have mail pickup or mail delivery, where your post office is at the edge of town, and so that you require either a relative to pick up your vote. There's also in Arizona, you know, there's large uh, indigenous community, and there were, you know, certainly was evidence of how far away persons would have to travel to deposit a, a ballot. If you just can't vote for those reasons and you're not and your vote is not being counted, you've been denied the right to vote, haven't you? I don't think anyone would say you've been denied a due process right to a hearing. This is not a due process. It. This is not a due process claim. No, I'm, I'm trying to get it's at the just, distinction between this, denial and... Well, no, you're denied something if you're not given um, the right to vote. So you mentioned that the protections being argued before the court this week were protections provided by the Voting Rights Act and specifically Section 2. Can you walk me through exactly what Section 2 says? So there were two primary components of uh, the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which provided that jurisdictions that had a disenfranchising device like a literacy test or a poll tax, and less than 50% of its eligible voters were registered as of November 1st, 1964, had to um, get federal approval before they could implement voting changes. 
those were called covered jurisdictions, right? And the approval process was called preclearance. So that was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. The other primary provision of the Voting Rights Act is Section 2. And within Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, it is a national prohibition against practices and laws that do not provide an equal opportunity for people of color to participate in the electoral process. So can you tell me, like, what what exactly is the Republican Party in Arizona? What were their arguments before the court? One of the things in regards to the Bronovich case is that the framework of Section 2 cases asks whether the challenge law results in a uh, certainly a disparate burden on members of the protected class. Public servants have no more sacred duty than protecting the people's right to vote while maintaining confidence in the integrity of election results. This case before the court establishing a clear and constitutional test that allows states to meet these imperatives. The Republican Party is asking the Supreme Court to soften the standard. The laws at issue here are valid under that test. They are also common sense and commonplace. Requiring in-person voters to cast their ballots at assigned precincts ensures that they can vote in local races and helps officials monitor for fraud. Restricting early ballot collections by third parties, including political operatives, protects against voter coercion and preserves ballot secrecy. For those justices that are inclined to believe the reasoning behind the law is to avoid voter fraud when there are no instances of voter fraud. Something that was very telling was a question that that Justice Barrett asked of the Arizona Republican Party. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct uh, um, voter dis- ballot disqualification rules on the books? She essentially asked them, you know, why were they even interested in the case? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. The attorney responded, because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. And it, it, it sounds like before the court, they they did this thing where they said the quiet part out loud, <laughs> where they were basically like, we are bringing this before the court and we are interested in in these particular laws because they help us win elections. Right. So it's very uh, interesting. You know, people say they say the quiet uh, part out loud. They've been speaking loudly for some time now. Uh, And I don't think, you know, I don't I don't think it's been quiet at all. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing. Okay, thank you. My time is up. What were the other arguments against these laws? Can you sort of break down what the other side argued before the court? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Ninth Circuit applied the correct test to determine that Arizona's policy of entirely disenfranchising voters who cast out-of-precinct ballots and its criminal ban on non-fraudulent ballot collection violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The other side was certainly arguing that the court should agree with the Ninth Circuit and say that those two provisions, because of the impact on voters of color, that the court should affirm those uh, laws violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The test is rooted in the plain text of Section 2, clear congressional intent, and this court's longstanding precedence. Section 2 includes what's called a results test, 
that the laws result in discrimination or that voters of color should have an equal opportunity to uh, participate in the electoral process and to elect uh, their candidate of choice. Democrats were arguing that the test, the results test, should stand. It has proven workable over many years in vote denial cases in the circuit courts. This test has resulted neither in the rejection of all manner of common sense voting regulations, nor in the impermissible consideration of race in the adoption of voting laws. Far from it. You know, there were certainly some suggestions that were made on what the test should be. Um, and, And I think that's the thing that concerns me the most is that if the Supreme Court is going to pick what test it thinks is the best, <laughs> as opposed to uphand, upholding the, the standard is troubling. And I don't think that this is the best case to actually try to establish um, a, a new test. Um, nonetheless, it's the case that the court has has received. Did, did we get any indication from the justices about how they might be leaning or, or what sorts of things they were thinking about? You know, this is an opportunity for a, a conservative court to uh, rule on this issue, and I just don't know how they're going to rule. We know some of the justices you could think were inclined to rule on a state's rights issue, that the state should have the right to make these kinds of decisions. It's important to understand that the Supreme Court is already weakened the Voting Rights Act. It did so in 2013 in the Shelby County versus Holder case. And that that case was a challenge to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, As I said before, Section 5 required covered jurisdictions and that Arizona was a Section 5 covered jurisdiction. So was Texas and Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, parts of Florida, parts of North Carolina, South Carolina, all or parts of approximately 11 states, um, had to submit any voting change to the United States Attorney General or the D.C. District Court before they could implement them. And that included everything from moving a polling place across the street to a congressional redistricting. The Supreme Court removed that ability from the federal government. And we know uh, that uh, Justice Chief Justice Roberts actually wrote the decision in the Shelby case and is not a proponent of uh, the Voting Rights Act or or Section 2. So I certainly think this is a dangerous time and that this is a pivotal moment in our history as a country. And we have cycles of progress and then regress. Started with the founding of the country and all men are created equal. But at the same time, we said that enslaved persons were three-fifths of a person. And it's, you know, 100 years from all men are created equal to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But then you saw laws that came into effect that wiped out all of that enfranchisement, right? That black men who registered in states like Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia were removed from the voter rolls because of poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, vouchers, and other disenfranchising mechanisms. It would take almost 100 years from the 15th Amendment to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We're at the halfway point. It'll be 56 years since the 
passage of the Voting Rights Act. So we're right in the middle. The Supreme Court has the power to say that states can once again impose these laws that would infringe upon the rights of of voters of color. I cannot wait another 40 plus years for us to achieve democracy, right? A true democracy. Gilda Daniels is a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She's also the author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. Rena Flores is the senior producer of Post Reports. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. This is Jess's last day at the Washington Post. She is the person who started the audio department at the Post and the person who really made Post Reports possible. She has always believed in this podcast, in this team, in me, and in the voices that you hear on this show every day. And we're so grateful for everything she's done as a leader and a mentor and a friend. Jess, good luck, and we will miss you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 